Omicron, I guess, or Omicron. How do you how do you pronounce it? We should say the same thing. I don't know actually. O- Omicron, I think. O- I think it's Omicron. I think it's Omicron, not Omicron. O- o- Let's go o- for Omicron. From OTMP, this is your COVID nineteen update. It is Wednesday, the eighth of December, twenty twenty one. It is now two months since the last community case in Hong Kong and the bubble with the mainland is due to open in the next few weeks. In our latest podcast, Dr. David Owens and Professor Ben Cowling discuss the current situation in Hong Kong and the potential implications of the Omicron variant recently identified in South Africa. They discuss the dilemmas around vaccine hesitancy in the context of zero COVID and specifically the threat of low vaccination rates in the vulnerable elderly. They also discuss the role of booster doses and the philosophical arguments around vaccine mandates. As with our previous episodes, this interview was recorded remotely. So Ben, it's been a while since we caught up. A few things happened since then. Both of us have been in quarantine, of course. Where do you think we're at at the moment in Hong Kong? We've now had six months without a large community epidemic of COVID. There's been a couple of close shaves, I would say, but uh, we've done really well to stay without COVID for six months. And now there's this chance to have a bubble with the mainland if we can stay at zero for a while longer. And if it stays at zero in the mainland, we could have the potential for a lot of cross-border travel, which I think is is good for Hong Kong. But I'm still wondering what's the longer term plan because for for Hong Kong, it's going to be tough to sustain the zero COVID cases in the longer term. We've done it for six months, but sooner or later, we are going to have to face a community epidemic and it's going to be tough to stop it. I hope that we can. And then as we've seen in the mainland, multiple times in the past six months, 12 months, they've had outbreaks in, in, in different cities. They've managed to get on top of it with their very stringent measures, but it is something that's going to keep happening. And in the longer term, as we've talked before, I, I, I think unless we're planning to close off Hong Kong to the rest of the world in the longer term, we have to figure out a way to to get the vaccine coverage up to a higher level and then decide what's the timeline to safely exit from from the current policies, and not now, but at some point in the future. And at the moment, I, I, I'm not sure what that timeline is. I guess one of the most obvious challenges on the horizon is and the recent developments with uh, the Omicron variant being picked up in South Africa. And with any new variant, there's really sort of three things that we need to look at, isn't there? There's a, there's a question, is the virus more transmissible? Does it, does it sort of travel from person to person more, more easily? Is, is it able to escape the existing immunity, can it evade immunity? So that sort of gives it more people to travel to, so it can expand more rapidly. And then the third thing is when it infects people, what severity of illness does it produce? Is it worse or is it milder? And how is that influenced by vaccines? Is that a reasonable assessment of new variants? And if so, where do you think we're at in terms of the data on Omicron? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair assessment. We're now in early December. There's just some preliminary information available on, on Omicron so far. We've seen that it's been able to spread quite rapidly in South Africa and seems to be at higher prevalences in, in Nigeria because of the number of exported cases that have been detected in people coming out of Nigeria. And that's a worrying sign. So for South Africa, for example, they've had a lot of infections in the past two years. They've had multiple waves of the ancestral virus which was like the the Wuhan strain. And then they had the beta variant in South Africa. And then most recently they had a large Delta epidemic. So 
the majority of the population in South Africa actually have a reasonable level of immunity to the Delta variant, and that's why it stopped spreading a couple of months ago. So now to see rapid increases in, in Omicron detections and what seems to be rapid increases in the incidence of infections is very worrying because that's in the context of a place with very high levels of immunity to, to Delta. What will happen in other parts of the world is not yet clear. But my suspicion is that Omicron is going to spread as rapidly as Delta has in the past and possibly even have an advantage over the Delta variant, partly because Omicron seems to be quite contagious and and partly because of the the possibility that it can escape from the immunity that's provided against infections by vaccination or prior infections. And so it's, it's, it's really very worrying signs at the moment. It's always possible that, that one of these new variants will fizzle out, but in this case, it seems unlikely given that already the, the number of detections that have been reported in, in, in different places. I think the other thing I would add to your, your list of categories is the controllability of the new variant, like the Omicron variant, depending on how it's spreading, if it's the same as with the previous variants. And I think we understand the, the approaches that are needed to control it. But one thing that worries me is our experience in Hong Kong. We've had over the past six months a lot of imported cases with the Delta variant staying in quarantine hotels. And of course, most people who are in our quarantine hotels in Hong Kong have been fully vaccinated. And there's only been a a very small number of within hotel transmission events. I think we remember the Stanley Helper a few months ago. That was a within hotel transmission event. Just very recently, there was another one in either the Four Points or the Regal Hotel. And there may be one or two others that we haven't picked up or detected or confirmed. But anyway, it's a small number of those events. But with Omicron, we've really just had that one case with Omicron that stayed in a quarantine hotel and transmitted infection. So maybe it's just a one-off, but it does make me worry that maybe Omicron is more contagious, particularly including to people that have been fully vaccinated and maybe were less susceptible to infection with Delta or with other strains of COVID. Now, the other criteria you mentioned was severity, and that's the area that we don't really have a good handle on for Omicron. There's reports that we're aware of from South Africa that most infections are mild. But at the same time, in South Africa, they've had a lot of previous infections. And I would imagine the people that are getting Omicron now have already had COVID once or even twice. And so that prior experience, that prior immunity is likely going to help to reduce the severity of an Omicron infection. And I'm not sure whether the the severity will look so mild in other places. We'll have to wait and see. It's still early days. And even if the initial cases that are detected in Europe, United States, elsewhere seem to be mild, we have to remember that there's always a lag. And in, in any case, the majority of COVID infections are mild. It's only the minority that need hospitalization. Just a, a small percentage at probably two, three, four percent of, of cases need hospitalization, particularly in, in individuals who've been vaccinated. And so it wouldn't be a surprise if most cases are very mild. The problem is if Omicron can spread easily, even in a a population with high vaccine coverage, then the numbers are going to add up pretty quickly. And even a small percentage of severe cases will will be a big number if there's a large number of infections, of course. One of the interesting things in this whole process is how rapidly we can get data from place to place, isn't it? I've I've been following that data out of Guatang province quite closely. And it, I mean, as you say, the, the, you know, the problem is that these cases have not been going on for that long. So although although there's a lot of talk about how mild this infection may be, we're only a month or so into it, and it takes 
it takes time for people to fall ill and get in, in you know end up in intensive care doesn't it so it may it may get worse we're dealing with south africa with a, a highly immune population because of the waves that have burnt through previously and we're also dealing with a young population and we've also got the demographic issues of high hiv counts so it's not a, a representative population which can be generalizable possibly and it's great that we're not seeing high levels of severe disease as yet but it's it's probably too early to say it's it's going to be as mild as some of the initial comments that are coming out. I think we just we just need more data, don't we? More time. Yeah, I think things are going to become clear probably by mid December in terms of the severity, and and we're all hoping that it's going to be a milder variant that that illnesses are going to be milder on average. We'll have to wait and see, but I think it's really wise to make a lot of preparations now in case the Omicron can spread easily and even in populations with high vaccine coverage and high levels of immunity. And if it's causing even slightly milder disease, I think it's still going to pose a major public health threat and may well justify some of the public health measures that have been used in the past with COVID and we were hoping wouldn't be needed again. Now, I I think some parts of the world are going to have to bring back some of those measures that they, they probably don't want to. Yes, if we look at some of that early transmission data from South Africa, it does suggest that it might be more infectious than than Delta, doesn't it? And what does that mean for maintaining zero COVID? I guess it's always brittle, but it makes it harder, doesn't it, in that if we were to get a case of Delta or, or an outbreak of something more infectious than Delta into Hong Kong with our current levels of vaccination in the most vulnerable members of the population, we'd be in some trouble, wouldn't we? So this brings us full circle, really, back round to the how do we boost those vaccination rates, you think? What's happening with your hesitancy uh, surveys, Ben? Yeah, no, that, I think you're right that we do face this continued risk of the virus starting to spread in our community. We've had quite a number of occasions when the virus has had a chance to, and for whatever reason, a, a larger outbreak hasn't occurred in the last six months, but it's only a matter of time until that does happen. And I think you're right that with a suboptimal vaccine coverage, particularly in older adults, it could be quite a tough situation to, to try and deal with if we have a lot of infections in the community in a relatively short space of time. And the measures that were used in the previous waves, the, the third wave and the fourth wave particularly, were sufficient to control those outbreaks. But the virus we have now, whether it's Delta or Omicron, is, is, seems to be much more transmissible and therefore much more difficult to control. In the mainland, they have managed to stop Delta outbreaks a number of times. But in Hong Kong, it, it's going to be tough for us. In terms of hesitancy, we still see a lot of hesitancy rather than outright refusal. A lot of people that are saying they're waiting to see, they're still waiting before they get vaccinated. So I I think if the level of risk changed, there'd suddenly be a large increase in the interest to get vaccinated and the demand for vaccination. But of course, now with fewer community vaccination centers open, if there was a sudden rush of people trying to get vaccinated, I'm not sure how quickly we could do that. And that's a concern to me, particularly for the over 80s. So Ben, you and I had a conversation. I think I put this proposal of a, of a rational hesitancy that may occur in a zero COVID environment. If, if there's not going to be any disease in the community, at some point it becomes a rational decision to not be vaccinated. I got a response to something I put on Twitter that said uh, not being vaccinated in zero COVID places may be temporarily a rational decision, but the government should warn citizens that zero COVID in this case could end abruptly and unintentionally or gradually with lots of advanced planning. Those are the two options and inform the public about action plans for all scenarios. I thought that was an an interesting idea that an elimination policy 
without a specific plan for exit has the potential to increase rational hesitancy. So going forwards, maybe that's the lessons uh, for the future is to balance the incentives to vaccinate with the focus on elimination to whether it's protecting the economy or in the case of, I mean, clearly in Hong Kong, we've decided to, for very valid economic and political reasons to open up the the border with mainland China. we have booster doses available now. We have only 18% of the most vulnerable members of our population, the over 80s, vaccinated. How do you think we encourage vaccine uptake? Because it's not just the over 80s who are going to struggle if we have a, a, a big epidemic, isn't it? We know that that will block up intensive care units. It's going to pose a threat to our health system, and that increases mortality from all sorts of other causes. How do we deal with that, do you think? No, I, I think we we do face a serious problem. So if if you imagine that that vaccination is something that you could do very very quickly with no capacity limits, then probably the optimal strategy for Hong Kong would just be to wait. And then when we start detecting community uh, cases in our fifth wave, once the number gets above twenty or fifty per day, then we say, okay, everybody's got to get vaccinated tomorrow. We go and do it, and that's all fine. But the reality is, we can't. We can't do that. We, we don't have the capacity to vaccinate large numbers of people in a very short space of time. And the vaccine coverage now is is not that high. If we wait until the situation when there is COVID in the community, unfortunately, it's likely going to be months before we can get the vaccine coverage in over eighties up to a high level, as well as giving out lots and lots of third doses to people who would really benefit from them. And and that's in the context of Hong Kong reducing the number of community vaccination centers and interest in vaccination has waned somewhat. So I, I do think we're actually in a, in a risky situation. If we'd had a, a fifth wave earlier, I think that there would have been probably a higher vaccination rate by now and also a well into third dose program. But uh, the fact that we've been able to stay at zero is, of course, a great, a great success. But it does also lead to, to one of the causes of hesitancy, which is the, the lack of perceived risk and the lack of perceived urgency. In the rest of the world, we're seeing an increasing move towards mandates, aren't we? we we've both argued that we're individually not so comfortable with mandating vaccination. But there are reasoned and rational arguments why vaccine mandates should be given. Have you changed your thoughts on that at all? I think there are good arguments on both sides. It's a very complex issue. I think if we were facing a a very pressing and urgent threat, and we could say that within the next three months, if you haven't been vaccinated, then you really need to protect yourself by staying at home more often. And for that reason, you you wouldn't be allowed to go to these various places that has been discussed in in Hong Kong in terms of vaccine passports. I think that would be reasonable as a short-term measure but i'm not very keen when i hear the news from other parts of the world that they're going to eliminate unvaccinated people from being able to to do the things that everybody else is doing i think in in austria they they're talking about having mandatory vaccination i know in other parts of the world as well saying that if you're not vaccinated you can't you don't have the vaccine certificate then you can't go here or there you can't do this or that and already we we know that you can't travel very easily in Hong Kong, it's very difficult to, to fly into Hong Kong unless you're fully vaccinated. But uh, I, I, I'm a little bit worried about the longer term precedents that the, these kind of measures are setting, because ultimately, I think it still should be an individual choice that we encourage, but maybe don't coerce. 
in terms of, of getting vaccinated. And I think as, as time goes on, it's also going to be more complex to decide who meets the criteria for being considered vaccinated or not, because someone who, who received vaccine a, a longer time ago and their immunity may have come down may not be in the same category as, as someone who's who's had booster doses more recently. And, and then also people who've been infected actually have very high levels of immunity. And once we have the Omicron variant that's uh, possibly able to get around vaccines to some extent, then there's less justification in terms of the, the reduction in transmission. And the justification for vaccination is really because of the protection against severe disease. I quite like the policy. I think it was in Thailand where they didn't require people arriving there to be vaccinated, but they did require them to have health insurance. That made a lot of sense to me. And the health insurance premium may, of course, depend on whether you've been vaccinated or not. But it made a lot of sense that they weren't restricting it. Arrivals to people who'd been vaccinated, but they were saying that, you know, you have to be prepared that if you if you were to get hospitalized for some reason or other, you, you're going to have to face the cost of that. And that, that kind of policy makes more sense to me than, than a mandate. Yeah, the difficulty I've been putting a bit of thought into the mandate's argument, and I, I, I still tend to be swayed like you, you know, with the arguments of rights and free will, individual autonomy which is possibly the, the strongest argument. I mean, I mean, there's also an argument that vaccine mandates may do more harm than good by polarizing attitudes and, and belief systems. And there's, there's, finally, there's the argument that, you know, we haven't exhausted other options. There are things we could do, like setting a deadline or financial rewards or nudges. The, it, I guess if we look at it from the, you know playing the devil's advocate from the other side that there is the utilitarian argument here which is you know the, the, the greatest good for the greatest number i mean why should the minority hold the majority to hostage to ransom metaphorically and there's the effectiveness argument which vaccine mandates do work we've seen that in in many locations where you know they take vaccination rates from 60 to 70% maybe it's up to 90% in things like the us government systems and in health systems. There's also an argument, I think it's almost like a face-saving argument that for some people who might, maybe because of the belief structure that they live within, that it's hard for them to change their mind. Maybe it's political, maybe it's individual, but it's it is, it's almost easier if the vaccine is, if they've been told they have to do it rather than than, 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 than making the choice. And I mean, I guess, how, how would you answer the, the, the argument that, well, it's not right to mandate vaccines, but you know, we mandate mask wearing and we mandate how many people can gather in, in in a social group and we mandate quarantine in Hong Kong. I must say I'm increasingly being drawn to the, the utilitarian argument for at least some degree of restriction of people who are not vaccinated, especially if we don't have high vaccine rates in the elderly. That could harm a lot of younger people because the hospital system could be overrun. That's a and I know you were sort of you were slightly upbraided, weren't you, Ben, for for raising the ethical issue? But I have to say, whenever you're debating public health policy and public health interventions, you always come down to an argument of ethics because these are decisions that are based upon balancing the risks and the benefits to the individual versus the risks and the benefits to the group. And there is always a rights versus responsibilities argument there. All all rights exist in tension, so to speak. So I'm philosophically beginning to draw a distinction between. Uh, I'm not so sure I'd agree with Austria forcibly injecting people. I mean, that's there are very few circumstances in which we enforce medical treatment on somebody against their wishes. That really is a breach of of of, of, of autonomy, isn't it? But saying you can't work in a care home if you're not vaccinated, or we expect our hospital doctors and nurses to be vaccinated, 
Is that unreasonable? I'm not sure that it is. In Hong Kong, we do have the requirement for healthcare workers to be vaccinated. I think there's very high coverage. They've been able to choose to pay themselves for weekly testing, but that may not be a long-term policy. In Hong Kong University now, there's a policy that students are not allowed on campus unless they've been fully vaccinated. So there are there are these small-scale mandates, but nothing at the community level. I think for the government, it would be a little bit of a, a difficult circle to square if they said, on one hand, it's really important to get vaccine coverage to a high level, and so we're going to have mandates or, or strong levels of coercion in terms of vaccine passports for where you can or can't go. If they were to say that on one hand, but on the other hand, to say that they're very confident in being able to stay at zero cases in the community so that we can have this beneficial bubble, travel bubble with the mainland for the coming 12 months or longer. I think that that's a difficult argument to make. If they were to go another way and say, we're going to do our best to stay at zero, but if things go the wrong way, and we do have a lot of cases, then we're going to be in facing a problem. Then I would understand then the urgency to get vaccine coverage to our higher level, but that's not the way it's being framed and the way it's being phrased. So that may be the, the difficulty at the moment. It's interesting because in, in China, and I know we both have great respect for the public health expertise in China, and China has quite high vaccine coverage, doesn't it? And, and although China is pursuing the zero COVID strategy, I think most of the senior Chinese public health officials that I've, you know, aware of their statements, they, they, they all talk about an eventual need to switch. It's just a question of the point at which they have adequate population immunity and possibly also the point at which the disease is less prevalent in, in the rest of the world and, and when their health system is more protected. So zero COVID makes perfect sense for China, doesn't it? To suppress through the winter, get high levels of immunity, protect the health system. But it is associated with a drive for high vaccine coverage. So I, I wouldn't see that as a contradiction with Hong Kong. I, I, I think you know, it makes sense for us to have the same policy as China, but we don't seem to have the high vaccine drive that China has. Well, there's probably di- different approaches in terms of, of, of achieving the high vaccine coverage in, in, in mainland China compared to in Hong Kong. But as you said, it's, it's not clear what's the exit strategy in the mainland. I don't know if they're waiting until new generations of vaccines are available with third doses and then fourth doses and and so on, so that at some point in the future, they can come out of the pandemic with a minimal health impact because such a high level of immunity has been obtained through vaccination. That would be a a wonderful outcome in a few years' time for for China. But in Hong Kong, we're following along with the mainland policy without knowing exactly what's the timeline, what's the, the exit strategy. And I guess a lot of the listeners on this podcast will be wondering how much longer the travel restrictions will be in place for, you know, what, what other things might happen. Because, of course, now the arrivals from South Africa have to spend the first week in Penny's Bay because of the threat of Omicron. And most likely, Omicron's going to become the prevalent strain in other parts of the world. And so if we follow the same approach, then arrivals from lots of other parts of the world are also going to have to go to, to Penny's Bay first. And so I think initially people were thinking about traveling. In the, in the past year and, and thinking about do they or don't they because of the 14-day quarantine. And now people have thought about do they or don't they with the 21-day quarantine. And then maybe in the future, it's going to be do they or don't they with, with some period of time in Penny's Bay as well. So it, it, there's still all this uncertainty as well in terms of planning ahead. For myself, I, in, in the University of Hong Kong, I'm, I'm looking overseas to bring in expertise to my team in, in terms of overseas researchers. And it's difficult. Recently, my department had a, a person who was very interested to come, but then on, on, on realizing the, the implications of the 21-day quarantine, not only on arrival, but also in any future 
overseas trips in, in the coming year or two, uh, that that person unfortunately changed their mind. And I, I think that may not be an unusual event in, in other businesses as well that are looking to, to recruit internationally. Well, it's for sure it's not. I mean, I, I speak to people every day who are uh, relocating or their businesses are relocating who can't recruit. Um, you know, we've seen what's happening with the, with, with airlines. There's, the uncertainty is, is, is creating a significant disruption. And the quarantine, I, I think, we have two aspects to quarantine, don't we? If, we, if, we, if we're going to continue with a zero COVID policy for a protracted period of time, then it's likely that that's going to be associated with quarantine and presumably increasingly with quarantine in designated quarantine facilities. That's certainly what's happened in China, isn't it? And, and you have argued, and I tend to agree, if you're going to have quarantine, it makes sense to have quarantine in a situation in which the quarantine actually works uh, in protecting the individuals and, and reducing the risks of the disease getting transferred into the population. And then the second is the length of the quarantine. Uh, and those are, for, for both those reasons, we have both argued that designated hotel quarantines are causing more harm than, 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 than good. And we've seen this now, haven't we, with quite a number of cases, and including the latest, uh, well, the Omicron case in, in Hong Kong was undoubtedly a, a hotel-acquired case. We, we have clear evidence for that. The paper from the Chinese CDC and the British Medical Journal just a, a few days ago was very interesting because they were they actually made the point that, that 14 days was, was adequate. Were you, were you familiar with that already, Ben, or was that, did that surprise you that that, that, that that data came out of China? No, I, I think we, we've talked about it as well on this podcast that the 14 days is is more than enough time in order to see whether the person coming into Hong Kong has been infected or not. Just because they test negative on arrival doesn't mean that they're clear of COVID because we know there's an incubation period. You've got to keep an eye on people, and that's why we have the on-arrival quarantines. But in Hong Kong, we have had a small number of detections after the 14th day. But when we look back and review them, actually what we find is that they're very likely to be within quarantine hotel infections leading to those later positives, or they're going to be the, the repositive phenomenon where someone's already recovered and at some point a month or two after recovery, they'll test positive again with the virus lingering in their body at, at low levels. So I think we could certainly shorten quarantine to 14 days if we were confident that there was no risk of within hotel transmission. But right now, there, there clearly is a, a very low risk, not a zero risk, but a, a very low risk of within hotel transmission. And that actually means that if you have a longer quarantine period, you have more chance of picking up a within quarantine infection before the end of the quarantine period. Imagine if you have a really long quarantine period for everybody, then anyone who does get infected in the quarantine facility is, is still going to be there when they get picked up as a, as a positive. And so that, that may be part of the rationale for 21 days here. But if we could have not a designated facility that you said, but if we could have a purpose-built facility for quarantine, like Penny's Bay for on-arrival quarantine, then I think we could certainly shorten the quarantine to 14 days very confidently and very safely for Hong Kong. And that might be a more sustainable approach. But then the problem is the capacity in Penny's Bay isn't really high enough. And I think if we were going for it as a sustainable approach, then I would like to see the Hong Kong government maybe make more effort with a purpose-built facility for on-arrival quarantine, not only to have the, the right design in terms of infection control, but also in terms of, of comfort for people who are going to stay there for 14 days. And if you're going to charge for it, then you can have 
different size rooms for, for, for different budgets. You can have family suites. You can arrange for, for different options for the catering. You can have high-speed broadband. If this is going to be something that's in place for a year or even multiple years, we could really do a good job of it. Obviously, if it's only going to be in place for a few months, then it may not be worth the expense. But the signs are that this facility could be used for, for the longer term. And so I'd, I'd, I'd like to see that purpose-built facility. And I, I, I've talked about it for, for months already. If, if six months ago we started construction, then it would be in use now. Again, there are the two issues. There's where you quarantine. And if, if we're going to have quarantine, it, the most effective quarantine needs to be in centres with adequate ventilatory control and, and, as you say, comfort and all those other issues. And then the, the length of quarantine, which we'd hope would be evidence-based. And I, my surprise was not at the 14 days as much as you know, all the experts that I've spoken to agree that 10 days is probably enough, 14 days is conservative. But actually, the, my surprise was the fact that, that the experts in this case were the experts from the Guangdong Centre for Disease Control. So we've tended to be told in Hong Kong that we have 21-day quarantine because that's what the experts in China want us to have. But actually, that's not what the experts in China are writing in international medical journals. That was sort of my point on that one. And I just wondered why, if 14 days is enough in Guangdong, it's not enough in Hong Kong. I think that the policies in terms of the duration of quarantine vary in different parts of mainland China. I think it's not uncommon to have 14 plus 7, so 14 days in a purpose-built facility, and then 7 days beyond that in another hotel or sometimes in the home if it's well sealed. But then there's some parts of the mainland where quarantine's longer and the travel within the mainland also sometimes incurs quarantines. I, I think right now people traveling into Beijing need to quarantine on arrival, even from other parts of, of the mainland. So I think there's no standard duration at the moment, but certainly there's good evidence that 14 days is, is more than enough in terms of duration. If you can be confident that there's no risk of within hotel transmission or within quarantine transmission. So we're two years in pretty much now. Ben, what do you think the future brings? If you're coming to the end of 2021, gazing into that future crystal ball, are we still going to have quarantine next summer? Ah, uh, So if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have talked about seeing the light at the end of the tunnel for, for other parts of the world. But with the Omicron variant, it really is a, a big concern. We'll have to see how things pan out in, in Hong Kong from our, our little bubble. And hopefully we won't have any, any community outbreak in the coming months. Our vaccine coverage is, is, is really worryingly low. So if we were to have an outbreak, I, I think we'd really struggle not only to control it, but also to minimize the health impact. Looking into the medium term future, it does seem like we're, we're going to have the zero COVID policy here and hopefully the mainland bubble for, for some time. There's no indication of, of when the end might come. And if we take reference from the Singaporean model in terms of their exit strategy, it's a strategy that requires months and months. So it's a number of months at the beginning just to plan everything out and get everybody ready for the gradual relaxation of, of policies. And then the relaxation phase is not a sudden relaxation of everything. There's, they're in the process now of, of relaxing bit by bit tentatively, and it could easily be a six to 12 month process from start to finish in terms of when the earliest policies are relaxed until everything's really relaxed and back to how things were before COVID. And so we, we haven't even started that process yet. So it, it, it is certainly going to be quite a long time. So not only next summer, I'm, I'm fairly confident there'll still be quarantines in place in Hong Kong next summer. 
next Christmas, even the following summer, it's, it's difficult to see that far ahead. And it, it does depend if we were to have a, a large outbreak of COVID or in the mainland, if they were to have a large outbreak and decide that uh, it may, maybe it's time to, to revisit the strategies. And of course, that would that would change the picture. But if things stay as they are, if we stay at zero, then there'll be a lot of momentum then to, to continue staying at zero. And I'm not sure what would change. Well, one thing that may change will be Omicron. And I guess the next few weeks will give us more information about the transmissibility, uh, the ability to escape current immunity, whether vaccine-induced or natural immunity, and the severity of the disease associated with it. And I guess the most optimistic outlooks would be that if this disease is transmissible, but associated with mild disease, that it may accelerate the development of herd immunity in, in much of the world. Although, as you say, it would still be very challenging and we, and we really don't know what would happen if, if this impacted immune naive populations like Hong Kong and like China. So I would imagine that, as you said, we're looking at a, a six month burn through at, at, at the very minimum if, if we um, if we look at the, the, you know, the mitigation undertaken in Singapore. So uh, an optimistic view would be we might be done by next summer, but that's not very optimistic, is it, Ben? Oh, no, I, I, I think that is, that is optimistic. If you talk about summer of 2022, I think that's very optimistic for Hong Kong. I, I'm now thinking in a, in a longer time scale and, and getting myself prepared for, for doing quarantine again two or three times next year and, and even thinking beyond that. Because I, if we can really succeed in the zero COVID approach, there's going to be a lot of momentum and a lot of kind of weight behind continuing because otherwise, if you if you move away from the zero COVID approach, you almost lose all those all, all the gains you've made in terms of protecting people's health. If we were holding out because we knew that there was a super vaccine coming that was you know 100% effective even against infection, and and we just need to wait another six months or 12 months and then we can all get that, then that's a different story. But I've heard nothing like that in the pipeline. The antiviral drugs look very promising, but uh, supplies are still limited, and it's not clear how well they'll work in. In, in real life. Hopefully they'll work as well as they do in their clinical trials. But I'm not sure what's going to change in the next 12 months or longer to move us away from the, the advantages of the zero COVID approach, which are, there's very clear advantages for us of the zero COVID approach. And so we, we may be in our bubble for longer. Okay, well, on that, not such an optimistic note, we'll say goodbye and wishing you the best and all our listeners the very best for, for Christmas and hopefully. 2022 will bring more positive news bye-bye as always the links to the papers in this podcast including further articles expanding upon the issues discussed are available on our website in both english and chinese at www.otmp.com as ever if you enjoyed this episode please don't forget to rate share and subscribe and of course please feel free to comment thank you for listening